That was such a fun intro. We could rewind that and do it again, right? I like that. So family matters. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about families. And I just felt the oxygen go out of the room. It's, it's one of those things, you know. Uh, families are just part of life. Um, I guess I can start off by telling a little bit about my family, where I came from. Um, I experienced, I mean, I'll just jump right out there, experienced divorce as a child. And so I understand a little bit about that. Um, And I'm obviously telling you a little bit about myself so that you'll see where I'm coming from and see where we go to in the Word and how God views family and how we can grow as a family. But my family wasn't the ideal, but I never remember a time where my mom or my father uh, denied me their love or treated me in a way that was unloving. As a child, I grew up with the security of knowing that My dad loved me, my mom loved me, and things just didn't work out. And I was of the age, and I was a teenager in high school, and I understood that it wasn't my fault that they decided to to split up. And and I I was already walking in a relationship with the Lord, so I, I didn't really doubt God. I didn't have a problem with, you know, Uh, maybe this was God's fault or he caused this or I didn't get mad at God. And thank God, by his grace, I didn't get mad at my parents. And my parents really weren't mad at each other. I just saw dysfunction and and understood that that was their choice. So, you know, what about this thing called families? What does God say about it? What does his word say about it? We're going to look at, look at that over the next few weeks. And we're going to end our series on family matters with Ken and Trudy Blanc coming at the end of September. It's going to be a great time. So I encourage you that Saturday, which is uh, September the 29th, uh, we're going to have a Saturday morning family matters uh, workshop, I guess you could call it, from about 9 o'clock till noon so you'll want to come here for that. It, we're, we're just asking the Lord to bless our families. You know, in fact, that's, one, that's a second part of our mission. We have a four-point mission at Lifeway Church, and the second part is to build strong families. You have to put some effort in it, right? It's not automatic. It doesn't just happen because two people fall in love. We saw through the video there, you know. Have you, could you experience some of that? Have you experienced some of that? You know, get in your place. No, no, no. You've got the wrong shirt on. No, no. You're supposed to be over here. The oldest goes over and then, you know, and then everybody smiles for the picture. So, family matters. Does it matter? It matters to us and it matters to God. There's two things that we have in common that... As uh, people that are born on this earth, and the first thing is that we didn't have a choice. 
and what family we were born into. You know, our mom, our dad, our brothers and sisters, and those that are related to us, we didn't have a choice. And so, growing up, I'm sure that you had the same thought I did back once upon a time where I thought, wouldn't it have been a nice to been a part of my friend's family? I had a friend when I was 12 years old. His name was Ralph Finkbinder, German name. And his father happened to be the general manager of a country club. And so I liked to go to Ralph's house after school. And <laughs> it was great. We could, they had a golf cart at the house. We could drive the golf cart up to the country club. We could go up and order anything, hot dog, french fries, Coca-Cola, and didn't have to pay. We just signed our name, and everything was great, and it was wonderful. And I thought, wow, isn't this a great family? Wouldn't I, I would love to be a part of this family. Where, did you have a friend or two that you thought, wow, it'd be great to have, be a part of that family? But listen, we didn't have a choice. We didn't have a, didn't have a choice in what family we were born to. The second thing that we have all in common is that uh, no one that you're related to is as smart as you are. Did you ever notice that? <laughs> Somebody said, that's true. It's true. Uh, and every one of us have a family member that we're kind of embarrassed of, right? There's always that one that kind of is the misfit or that sticks out that everybody kind of walks away from. Uh, if, if your family's like mine, and I'm sure that it is, family is, it's a big subject, guys. And listen, I'm, I understand how huge it is when you talk about families. We, you know, we have here today, we have people that have never been married. We have people that have been married one time, twice, three times. But listen, God is a God of family. He created family. We have people in this room that are raising their children's children or maybe foster parents or adopted parents. There's all kinds of family. That's a huge tent that this word family sits under. And so we're, we're, we're taking on this huge task in just a few weeks and looking at how God sees that. Do you ever notice, too, that uh, no one can cut you down like your own family? And hurt you because they're close to you. They know you like nobody else knows you. And so they know how to kind of push your buttons, right? And so there's some tension there. We're going to deal with that. And so, you know, the first thing we, we, we look at when we look in the Bible, you think, okay, from Genesis over to uh, Revelation, we're going to find some perfect families. You look in the Bible to see God's pattern and perfect families. Well, let me just inform you that right up in the front, you see Adam and Eve who loved each other and were doing great and living in paradise, but then you notice the man chooses the woman over God. The man chooses the woman over God. And one minister said this, that a man chose in the beginning woman over God, and men have been choosing women over God ever since. And that's where the dysfunction comes in. When you put God first, everything else flows and falls in place. But when men choose women over God, then things go a little bit haywire. But you know, you don't have to go too much further in the Old Testament to find the dysfunction between brothers. You have Cain and Abel that were uh, living 
together in harmony and uh, developed a horrible relationship, enmity, hatred between the two, and ended in murder. So not, we're not even out of Genesis, really even through the first few chapters of Genesis, and there's a murder in the, fam- in the, first, in the first family. Then you look at, in Genesis at, at Abraham, the father of faith. What about his family? Well, you find his wife, Sarah, telling her husband to father a child by the handmaid, Hagar, because Sarah was afraid that they weren't going to have a son that God had promised. A little dysfunction there, right? So Ishmael's born to Hagar, and then Isaac's born to Sarah. And so Ishmael gets jealous, and Isaac and uh, Abraham have to send Hagar and Ishmael away, fighting and fussing. The dysfunction, we see it all through, all through the Bible. Then we go to Isaac. Isaac and, and Rebekah, they love each other, but they have two twin boys that can't stand each other. They're fraternal twins and nothing alike. So Jacob has to, leave, has, has to leave because Esau was going to kill him. I mean, we're, we're looking for perfection, right? We, sh- we should be able to find it here in the Word. Uh, Jacob, Jacob comes back when he's grown up, and he's been working for his uncle, who is his father-in-law, who has tricked him for years. That's betrayal. And Jacob couldn't trust his father-in-law, Laban, because he tricked him over and over and over. Betrayal. So Jacob has two wives, 12 sons. Ten of the brothers want to kill their younger brother, Joseph, and because they're jealous, right? They throw him in a pit, and instead of killing him, they sell him off as a slave. Dysfunction, dysfunction, dysfunction. Dis- I'm not finished yet, Okay. So let's fast forward just a little bit to David. How about David? David killed Goliath, giant killer, worships God, writes most of the Psalms, knows how to worship like nobody else on the earth, has a great relationship with God, but doesn't have a clue how to get along with his family. His own son is rebelling against him and tries to kill him. David thinks it's nice to have other women So he has a man killed so that he can marry the other man's wife. David, right? Man after God's own heart. How about Jesus? Jesus, 12 years old. Now he's doing good, but mom and dad loses Jesus. (laughs) How can you lose your 12-year-old son for three days? Where did he go? What's up with that, right? (laughs) I mean... I'm asking that question every time I read that, like, Mary and Joseph, where, where, were your head, where, where was your head? You know, so Jesus begins preaching, and then his own brothers and sisters think he's crazy. They don't believe he, that he is the Son of God. They think he's gone off his rocker. So, we, you know, guys, we see all kinds of dysfunction in the Bible, right? These, these folks were not walking around with halos around their head. And I'm so glad, I'm so glad that God chose not to cover up the dysfunction. I'm so glad that he allowed us to see the reality 
of living with one another and trying to get along, trying to love one another in spite of ourself, in spite of that person. You know, sometimes we try to love each other in spite of each other. And then we try to love each other in spite of ourselves. We get in the way, right? So there's just a lot of dysfunction. And God wants to remove the dis. He wants us to function. And so today, the t- today's title, I apologize again, we, we, you're not, you don't have a note sheet in front of you, but today's title is Ideal and Real. There's ideal and then there's real. And so God knows the ideal, but he also knows the real. And I'm so glad that God chose not to cover up the real. And he's speaking to us from the word. Maybe some things that I said just there in that introduction encourage you to get in the word and study and and to see that people were really real in the Bible. And we're really real. And God knows where you're at He knows what you're dealing with, and he knows how to fix it. One of the words we sang this morning was restore. He restores. He restores by his love, and he he gives us not just a second chance, but a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth and a seventh as many times as we need, 490 in one day just for the same sin. That's what makes me excited about bringing this message of hope to you guys about the family. You know, we're not going to be nervous and try to measure up to something that we've created in our own mind that's some ideal family. I grew up in the day where there was, well, we watched reruns of uh, Beaver Cleaver and Leave it to Beaver and Father Knows Best and, you know, it's just so perfect We have this idea of perfection that nothing ever goes wrong and nobody ever gets upset and nobody ever says a cross word and everybody has a great day and there's plenty of money in the bank and you can just do what you want to and mom comes home, you know, dad comes home, mom's got pearls on and high heels and (laughs) here's the meal and everybody sits down and right, not, not, right? So, you know, I I think uh, my greatest desire through these next weeks is to see all of us move one notch up, one step up in our relationships. And that's really what it's all about. Family is all about relationships. You know, when I was single, going to Bible school, I had two roommates. And during that time, they were my family. I mean, we shared meals together, we shared the restroom together, and some of us picked up our underclothes, and some of us didn't pick up our underclothes. And, you know, we were pretty close. And, uh, you know, you just learn things about people, and it's all about relationship. And when God starts revealing things about you through somebody, he he points out things that we need to fix in ourselves. So we're going to be fixing some things in ourselves over these next few weeks. But, um, you know, we, we think about the Christian family values that we find in the Word. You know, and we see God's design for families, and we, we think in our minds, we want to believe that it's been a big part of 
all the cultures through all the ages, but that just has not been the case. That hasn't been the case. For the most part, most civilizations up to this point have been dysfunctional when it comes to, fa- to the family. Really. Because Paul, when Paul brings these teachings in Ephesians about husbands love your wives and children obey your parents, and he, he begins to expound upon these relationships and how they work together, it was a new thing to them. He, he, Paul brought a gospel to, to the Roman world, and they didn't understand what he was saying. The truths that he was explaining were not understood by the Roman world. They were enthralled with Greek mythology and, and Greek philosophy. And they worshipped to a degree, they worshipped their bodies. And, and they, they're influenced by the Greeks. They were very immoral people in that day that Paul spoke. Prostitution was accepted. Homosexuality was accepted. Sex with children. The only thing, the only thing that was forbidden was having sex with your parents, which is incest, right? And the male uh, men dominated everything in that culture. And so it wasn't good. And Paul was bringing this message that there's neither male nor female under God's authority, right? That we're equal, equally loved and honored by God. But the culture of that day wasn't honoring to children or women. It was male-dominated. You know, women were treated a little bit, little bit higher than children, and children were treated a little bit higher than pets. Marriage uh, was made up of uh, families coming together and bartering for this wedding. And when, uh, or if the man was a little bit older, he would pay for his wife. Two camels and three sheep. Well, that woman looks like she could get, a, you know, five camels and two goats. I don't know. This, this mentality is what Paul was, was really confronting as he taught from the Word and by revelation and understanding of the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't popular. He didn't get a lot of amens in his day. Jesus either in his teaching, when he started talking about uh, children in Matthew 19, you remember the, the incident where the children wanted to come to Jesus? They were attracted to him because of his love for children. And the disciples said, no, 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 no. He doesn't have time for the children. His own disciples who had been walking with him, think about that. They had seen his love. They had experienced his love and still didn't get the fact that his love was drawing the children and that God loved children just as much as he loved adults. But Jesus stopped them and pointed out the fact that, no, 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 in order to come into the kingdom, you have to be like one of these. So God is not just for adults. God is for children. And through the gospel of Jesus, through the words of Paul, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, God is endeavoring all through the word to lift children and women up to a, a more elevated place than previously in the past civilizations, in the past, in, in the past history that we see in, in the Word of God, right? The day that we're living in, even, 
even the day that we're living in. There are countries that women are, are, are thought of as property, that they're bound. They don't have rights. They cannot vote. They can't own property. Can you imagine that? I know even some of the women that live, in, are, are, live here or that are in the room that, this morning, we can't even con- conceive how dysfunctional it is when you take the family out of the culture. And you know there has been an extreme attack against the family for years and years and years now. And we feel that. The attack against the family, uh, the attack against marriage is, a, uh, is an attack against the foundation of God's principles in our culture, in our society, where we live. And so it's so important that we see family like God sees family. You know, Jesus teaching, he begins, he begins to deal with the ideals. The kingdom of heaven is like... And the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus talks in the Beatitudes, the kingdom of heaven is like, and this. And he begins to lift up the ideals, right? Jesus is teaching in ideals, and in Matthew 5, he confronts the, uh, mo- uh, the issue of adultery. Turn over to Matthew chapter 5. He confronts this commandment of divorce. Jesus says in verse 27 of chapter 5 of Matthew, he says, you've heard that it was said that you should not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So, Jesus didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill the law. But his teachings actually raise the level higher. He goes another level over the Mosaic law, right? So he's teaching ideals. He teaches about divorce. Look in verse 31. He said, it's been said that anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, raising the level. He's teaching ideals. But Jesus, at the very same time he's teaching the ideals and raising the standard, He understands that we live in a real world. He knows that we live in a real world. And so he, he, in order to show that Jesus knows that we live in this real world, he bends down to the woman that's about to be stoned and loves her at that point of death because really Jesus was the only one in that group that had a right to stone her to death. And he let her go free by his grace and by his mercy. So Jesus understood the ideal, but he ministered to the real. And that, that's what I want us to see through, through these weeks of looking at the family. There is the ideal, but we live in the real. And there's a gap between ideal and real. 
And the thing that bridges that gap is the grace of God. God's grace bridges the gap between the real and the ideal. The ultimate goal of grace is not just to forgive you of the same sins over and over and over. Now, I'm not saying that God won't forgive you over and over because He will. But God wants to empower us with His grace to come to a place where we begin to overcome sin. Right? So, God's grace is that power that bridges the gap between the ideal and the real. Look at Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. We need to live in a place where we recognize just how great the grace of God is. And just how much that grace has, has changed us and forgiven us. So that that grace develops a determination within us to live above the sin. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13 says, For it's God who works in you. It's God working in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God's grace is working within you to will to do what he wants you to do, right? The difference between the real and the ideal. We are in the real. God knows that we live in the real. But that doesn't lessen, it doesn't lower the standard of the ideal just because we're in the real. Do you see that? His grace not only forgives me, but it gives me this new desire that I didn't have before, that I'm going to beat this thing that I've been struggling with, whatever that is, right? Anger, strife, saying things that I don't want to say. God's grace helps me to rise above this and to, to, to work on that gap between the real and the ideal in our, in, and think of it in our family, you know. Listen, when you change, your family changes. A lot of us, and I've been guilty of this before, I, I want my family to change. And every time I go to God in prayer, transparently, I'm standing transparent before you this morning. Lord, change my family. He says, okay, you change you, and your family will change. Absolutely. So I know, I know the answer before I even pray that prayer. But I still put myself in that place, and I say, Lord, fix me. Do me. Help me. I need more of your grace to work on that gap between real and ideal. Right? Are we willing to embrace an ideal knowing that we might not always live up to it? Are we going to abandon the ideal and call our shortcomings normal? This is what, this is what the culture today does. 
they call the shortcomings normal. Well, we just, we just can't do marriage. We just can't do it right. So, you know what? We won't even get married anymore. It's normal. Just live together. It's okay. We're just trying it out. After all, it's normal. Because we can't seem to believe that we can do marriage. But you see, God's ideal never wavers. His standard doesn't come down just because we live in the real. Right? Are we willing, are we willing to embrace an ideal knowing that we might not always live up to it? Or are we going to ab- abandon that ideal and call our shortcomings normal? When you embrace an ideal you know that you will never fully live up to, you begin to expend, uh, experience a tension between this ideal and the real. So a huge segment of our, of our society says, says this about children. Well, we, we just can't, we can't discipline our children. They go to school, and so they're not, not disciplined at school. So they come home, and I can't discipline them. So we just, we just abandon the ideal for the real, and we just say, just be real. Kids are kids. We can't expect that they'll do anything right until they, they, they grow up and hit their head against the wall. No, 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 no. God's Word says that we should train up, chil- train up children. From, that means from day one, from when they're born until they leave your house. They're part of your responsibility to train up in the way that they should go. And when they get older, doesn't set a date, but as they get older, they will not depart from the way that you brought them up. We can't abandon training up our children just because the world has abandoned, abandoned it and called it normal. Again, God's ideal doesn't change. We live in the real, and he knows that. But he gives us grace to bridge the gap. It's his grace that we need. Learning how to do things God's way. And sometimes it seems like a, a huge task to go from here to here. But God doesn't expect you. I'm here to tell you this morning. God doesn't expect you to take this leap all in one day. It's a process that takes progress. It's a process that takes progress. Don't abandon the ideal just because you're living in the real. Deal with the gap with the grace of God. Deal with the gap because there is a gap between the ideal and the real. You know, the temptation is, let's, let's, just, let's just forget it. Our shortcomings are normal and we'll just live down here. And I've seen people live like that in their, in their marriage and in their family. It's just, well, if you can't beat them, then join them. That's wrong. That's wrong thinking. We need to come up. I believe that the ideal is worth shooting for. And even if we do fall short, God's always there with His grace. And that's the tension that we, that we live with. Knowing that we're human. Knowing that we fail, we make mistakes, 
but God's there with His grace to help us. The grace of God is so much greater, greater than we've ever experienced up to this point. His grace is greater. His grace is out in front of us. I'm not sure what you're dealing with today, but the grace of God is here. And the grace of God is for you. God is for you. It doesn't matter where you've been in the past, who you've been married to in the past, if you've got blended children, a blended family, maybe you've not ever been married yet, but God's grace is here for you. He's here for you this morning. And so I, I, want, I want to minister. Uh, let's just pray. I believe that the Lord will, will speak specifically to your heart right now. In Jesus' name, Father, thank you. You do heal us.